Hey, I'm Mike Cruz, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. Hey everyone, uh, it's Mike Pruce here. Today I'm uh, really excited. I'm, I'm joined by Jim McKelvey. Uh, Jim is a serial entrepreneur. He's an inventor, philanthropist, artist. Uh, today we're going to be digging into a book he recently published called The Innovation Stack. Uh, Jim's probably best known for being the co-founder of Square, uh, sort of the chairman of the board, still sits on the board as of today. Um, in 2011, uh, the iconic card reader that you guys probably all have seen was Square that's connected to that iPhone was introduced into the, the Monomer Museum Art. Uh, Jim more recently founded a company called Invisibly. Uh, it's an ambitious project to help you uh, rewire the economics of online content and also currently serves on the deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Uh, Jim, welcome to the show. How did I do with the, the intro? Thanks, Mike. It's the Museum of Modern Art. Oh, you said sorry about like that. The Modern Museum of Art or something like that. But hey, it's your show, and I'm sure you're going to retape that. So no worries. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, awesome. Where, where are we reaching you from today? I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, my hometown. All right. So is that where you spend like most of your time still is in hometown St. Louis and, and spending most of your days there? Well, I mean, you know, during the pandemic, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I usually travel a lot more than I have been in the last year, but uh, crazy times. Yeah. What have you been doing just to keep yourself sane, you know, at home in quarantine and with, with not a lot of travel to be had? I'm working on my uh, commercial pilots uh, rating and uh, learning how to fly big planes. So there I'm, you go. I read I in the book if I was that be you, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. There's a little lag. Go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I've just been, uh, I, I, I figured if I have all this time, I should be doing something with it. And I've always wanted to be a little bit better pilot. So I've been flying like crazy and doing all these tests and, you know, That's learning, incredible. learning how to handle big metal. I, I read in the book that you were scared of flying at some point, right? And that your kids blindfolded you and just put you in the plane and all of a sudden you were flying the plane. Yes, I became a pilot under duress. Um, <laughs> that was something that uh, I've never expected to, but I ended up blindfolded and uh, uh, basically kidnapped and taken to an airport and forced to fly. And I've been doing it ever since uh, and always terrified. Um, yeah. Actually, one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, sort of the fact that you can do something when you're still scared. And the example I use is that I fly planes and I'm always scared when I fly a plane, but you can do it even though you're scared. What kind of type rating are you going for? Is there like a big plan you're trying to fly? So I, 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 I want to be typed in um, transport level jets. So okay. like commuter airlines. Okay. My, like the, the big um, stuff. Yeah. My father-in-law uh, recently um, came a captain on the Dreamliner. Uh, so he's on the 787. And then oh, Sam wow. on okay. our team um, has a, a crazy story. Actually, this is kind of all widely uh, tied together. So I was with Sam. Uh, you'll see where I'm going here in a second. Sam's on our team. Uh, his dad flies for South Southwest, uh, who you talk about in the book with. with oh, yes. Herb. And um, Sam's dad was a private pilot. And this is in 2001, right before September 11th. And I think the day uh, before September 11th, uh, Sam's dad was actually supposed to uh, get type rated for the 737 and they grounded all commercial travel. Uh, so his dad got in his truck. He's in Illinois, drives all the way to Phoenix throughout the night to show up to get tested uh, for the type rating. 
And Southwest loved it so much that hired them, even though, you know, they're in the midst of back then the crazy uh, event that happened. So, wow. Uh, pretty funny because I know we talk about Southwest, you're, you're getting type rated. So uh, very cool way to start. Uh, what are you, are you going to get like a plane? Like, so you're going to get type rated for this thing. Like, how are you going to yeah, get Yeah, yeah. So I, I had a plane. I had an old, uh, I had an old beater jet. It was called the Saberliner. Okay. It's a, basically an old piece of military hardware. Um, and that got me interested in flying, um, big metal. And then, uh, you know, I'm still sort of playing around with big, big airplanes, but I'm not legal okay. to fly them. I can, I can fly twins and stuff, but nothing over 12,000 pounds. Okay. Are you gonna be like John Travolta? You're gonna have like a runway and, and some planes? No, or what's that gonna no, look like? no. Uh, I'll probably do humanitarian missions or something with it. I don't really have that i don't have that much need for it personally um yeah. but it's just something that was really cool and i wanted to do it so so i'll try to weave in as many aviation analogies into there this we go. interview as possible that, that'll be the, the the analogy of choice we'll just use I'm, all aviation I, analogies i'm a fan so getting getting into things uh you know you mentioned you know you were at square uh huge success you know what was the impetus to write the innovation sack the book right i get a sense that from reading the book when Amazon entered the market and more or less ripped off Square, you're like, "Oh shoot, this is happening." Uh, but was when did you decide, like, "Hey, I need to write this book and and put my own time and resources into doing that"? What was that that moment for you? That moment was when Herb Kelleher basically told me to do it. Uh, so the founder of Southwest Airline or Airlines gave me a homework assignment, effectively. So what you know, the, the path is as you said. I, um, you know, we survived this attack by Amazon, which startups are never supposed to survive an attack by Amazon when they, yeah. you know, copy your product and undercut your price. But Square did. And not only did we survive, but we watched Southwest or I'm, I'm sorry, we watched Amazon completely abandon the market. And mm -hmm. this was amazing to me. And so just out of curiosity, I was trying to figure out what the heck happened, um, because statistically, you would never expect a startup to beat Amazon. So I didn't want to just write it off to luck. And I did what was about two and a half years of research looking for other companies that had been in a similar situation. And, and it turns out I found a bunch, but yeah. they were sort of scattered throughout history. And the problem with history is that the founders are all dead. So I couldn't talk to any of the people who had actually done these miraculous things, except for Herb Kelleher. So Herb, founder of Southwest Airlines, was still alive. And so um, I called him up and he agreed to spend a day with me in Dallas, Texas. And I flew in um, on Southwest Airlines and spent a day with Herb Kelleher, like the legend Herb Kelleher. And, you know, I said, basically, look, Herb, here's all this research I've done. And here's how this tech company that I started, I think, is really similar to an airline that you started 40 years ago. Mm hmm. And um, Herb got really excited. He, he pointed out some stuff that I'd overlooked. But at the end, he said, how are you going to share this with the world? Like, what's, what's, how do you plan to, to, to share this information? And I thought about it, and, and um, I was like, oh, my God, I guess I can't just sit on this. Because um, up until that point, it was sort of a self-directed project. I was okay. more you know, sort of curious. Um, but when I realized what Herb was asking, uh, I thought, okay, I got to get this out. So my first thought was to write a graphic novel, like to, to do a mm -hmm. cartoon. And so that the, actually the first half dozen drafts of the book were all graphic novel format. Um, and actually Herb hated. So I, I spent a year basically doing a graphic novel version of the innovation stack. And when I, 
told her what I was doing, he was really upset. Like he was really disappointed. Like he thought that was a terrible way to introduce this material. And in hindsight, I can see that he's right because graphic novels tend to have, you know, sort of a hero as the central character. You know, mm-hmm. there's always some caped dude who, you know, has superpowers. And, um, and I think, although Herb is not around anymore, um, I, I, and I never got to really sort of, you know, have, have him see the final draft. Uh, like the final draft is a much more human treatment of the process uh, because what I was doing by using a graphic novel format, I, I was sort of setting up this hero myth. I was perpetuating this idea that somehow super successful entrepreneurs have something that you and I don't. Somehow mm. they've got this, you know, the superpower and, you know, you can't see through walls. So therefore screw you. Um, I think the final three drafts of the book, which were all text, uh, were what Herb would have liked. Unfortunately, Herb, uh, Herb died before I could get the thing done. So, um, but that's how it came to be. And it's, you know, sort of an honor to the man who started what I consider still one of the greatest companies ever. Because if you think about the airline industry, everybody gets the exact same tools. Like they've got mm-hmm. the same rules, they got the same physics, they've got the same routes. Like they just don't give you special treatment. Like you can't you can't patent anything in an airline. Yeah. Like they so for Southwest to take such a commoditized industry and not only dominate all of air travel in the United States, which they did, but they dominated the S&P 500 for like a decade. Like they were the top performing stock and it was an airline. And everyone thought, well, that's impossible. And it turns out if you have an innovation stack, it's not impossible. I also love Herb. Uh, I actually got to meet him once as well. I was in the entrepreneurship program at uh, Indiana and he came and, and gave a little talk to our class. So I didn't get to spend the same one-on-one time, but it was really cool. Was he, uh, he was not smoking at the time, but you could definitely tell he was a smoker. Do you still have the, do you have the pack of cigarettes still? Signed yeah. Up? Yeah, I made him autograph a pack of cool menthols for me because, um, <laughs> you know, he's a legend and he went through a pack and a half during, I'm probably more like two uh, during the, uh, uh, during our meeting. It, it, it was an amazing moment. Um, and he, he was this larger than life, but also really accessible guy. Just this great combination of sort of humor and wit and also incredible competence and warmth. It just, you just felt good being around Herb. Yeah. So you mentioned in the book you didn't want it to be a graphic novel uh, because uh, of, you know, hey, these heroes have powers that me and you don't have. In the book, you also touch on uh, this idea that entrepreneurship, you know, classes can't be learned or, or kind of this idea of entrepreneurship in a classroom. Like, what what's your whole take on that whole, you know, are entrepreneurs born or or are they made? Like, how, how do you think about evaluating a founder or, or this whole notion of a quote unquote entrepreneur? So um, I guess I'd have to start by what, what do you mean by entrepreneur? Because you're going to use the word and your listeners are going to think, oh, he just means entrepreneur, like I commonly hear the term used. And that's not how I use the term. So the word entrepreneur is a word that has changed drastically in its meaning. It's almost come to mean the opposite of what it used to mean. Mm-hmm. So the original use of the term was a sort of crazy disruptor of an industry or creator of an industry, i.e. somebody who was most likely to fail or die. 
these were not business people. These were not folks who you expected to make money. These were, in fact, not people who you expected to even see again. You know, so um, the so I'll give you an example. The Wright brothers. All right. Yep. They owned a bicycle shop. As bicycle shop owners, they were business people. As potential aviation pioneers, they were entrepreneurs. So flying airplanes was entrepreneurs. Flying, uh, building bicycles, those are business people. So the, the rights, you know, made a living, you know, fixing spokes and, you know, pumping up tires and stuff like that. And that was an important distinction for me to be able to write the book. Because when I started to write the book, what I realized is that the English language literally doesn't have a word for a business person who doesn't get to copy a formula that's known to work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back to your born v made question. And I would say that entrepreneurs are almost certainly all made. In other words, there is no special thing you need to have that makes you an entrepreneur. However, it is such a rare path to walk. Most people never do it. And that's sort of what I do in the book. And as a matter of fact, that's, that was ultimately the thing that I used to, to justify all this work in writing the book is that I, I know people, one person in particular, and in fact, I dedicated the book to her, who is super competent, um, has a master's degree in a technical field from one of the best educational institutions in the world. I mean, she's incredibly complicated, complicated and competent. Um, and yet I've watched her over the years encounter problems. And when she comes up against a problem where she doesn't feel qualified, she stops. She says, oh, I can't do this. And, you know, the last time she said that, she went off and got a master's degree from, you know, <laughs> like for two years, just so that she could be competent to make the next step. And, and my point to her, which is sort of my point to all the readers, is, look, the first time anything is done in human history, by definition, it is done by an unqualified person. So back to the Wright brothers, if you think of them as pilots, like I'm a more qualified pilot than the Wright brothers. I mean, I've been training for 10 years. I've had a bunch of simulator time. I've had a bunch of like, I, I've had, I've been taught by people who know I am a qualified pilot, but Orville and Wilbur could not have been qualified. There was no way to get in the first airplane and have any qualifications. Like, and, and if you think about that, it's, it's really sort of profound because we are so trained to only do things that we're qualified to do and to step away from the stuff where we're not, you know, sort of credentialed. But my argument in the book is like, look, there are going to be some times in your life when you come across a problem where you can't copy the solution. And then what the hell do you do? And in that situation, you will not be qualified, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you're going to feel really super uncomfortable. And it also means that most of the tools that you are used to using don't work or they work differently than you were expecting. And I'll, I'll give you, oh, 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 so here's a, here's an aviation analogy for you. Love it. Um, uh, so do you know what the area of reverse control is? Actually, I, I do I, not. I have, a, I have a textbook on my, okay. 
I don't know if you can see this. Yep. I can if, see it. If you, if you can, I don't know if your readers are ever going to look at this. If you can see this graph, okay, this, this, this line here shows two airspeeds for um, the same power setting. And what, I, what, what, what does this mean? What, what does this, what, how does your life defend, depend on this? Okay, so everybody who's flown on any airplane, you will die if your captain does not understand the difference between slow flight and normal flight. In normal flight, if you pull the yoke back, the plane goes up. And if you push the throttle in, the plane goes faster. But when you slow down to a certain airspeed, the yoke no longer controls pitch and the throttle no longer controls speed. And when you're landing, like at the most dangerous moment of an airplane flight, the controls work backwards. So if you're coming in for landing and you think, oh, I'm going to be short, I'm going to like hit that tree, and you try to miss the tree by pulling on the yoke, you'll die. <laughs> like that's <laughs> and, and this is what we teach every pilot. Okay. This is what we teach every pilot. Um, and it's it's an analogy since, since I promised. Mike, Mike and I made an agreement to, to listeners that I would use as many aviation analogies as possible in this uh, uh, in this podcast. So so here's the aviation al analogy. If you were an entrepreneur and you think you're a business person, you're going to kill yourself. Conversely, if you're a business person and you do the things that work for entrepreneurs, you will kill yourself. Because, and, and I drove myself, I, I flew into a lot of metaphorical trees in my uh, business career because, like, for instance, I'd have a problem with one of my companies and I go to one of my friends and I'd say, well, how did you solve this problem? And they'd say, oh, Jim, just do this. And I'd go home and I'd do it and it would blow up. And then sometimes I would have a solution that was working for me and I was like, oh, this is how we do it. And, and, and they would try it and it would blow up for them, you know. It turns out that what entrepreneurs do is different enough from what normal business people do that like the whole last third of the book is just here's why you do it differently under these circumstances mm -hmm. and the math behind it. I mean, there's all, there's all, there's, there's always sort of good, good mathematical reasons for this stuff, but like, you know, easiest example to understand is um, pricing. Like why would you ever not charge a little bit more if you have no competition and your customers are happy to pay for it? You know, and it turns out that there are certain cir circumstances where charging more for your product, even though you're totally capable of making way more money short term, uh, really hurts your long term. Um, so, yeah, entrepreneurs are made. They are not born. And more profoundly, most of them are not volunteers. In other words, most of them are not these sort of bold, adventurous people who sit there and say, I'm going to go do this thing that's never been done before. They end up, at least according to my studies, and, and frankly, also in my own personal life, they just end up in terrible situations in which they refuse to die. So, so maybe that's the born part. Like we all have this survival instinct as humans. Mm -hmm that wants to keep us alive. So if you, if, you know, if you threaten my life, I will fight you, you know, and if you threaten my company's life, I will keep fighting for its survival. But, you know, the average company is not fighting for its survival every day, but entrepreneurs frequently are. And it's, so maybe the survival instinct is, is the only thing you get from nature. And the rest of it is, you know, just reacting to your environment. What, 
bit kind of riffing on that a little bit, you know, yeah. there's more companies, a ton of startups being created every day now. What percentage of those do you think those are founders starting those companies? And, and what percentage are entrepreneurs, right? Or what is a company maybe, hey, this has been done before and we're creating a better mousetrap versus something that, hey, going back to the, the analogy of, of air, like this, we've never flown a plane before. Like, do you have yeah. a sense of like what that breakdown looks like or, or is it kind of it's more qualitative? Definitely less than 1% are entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. I would maybe guess one in a thousand, one in 10,000. Um, is that a bad thing? I think it is. I think it is because I think the, the entrepreneurs give us the new things. You know, you look at a company that's really bringing us the future in, in a significant way, not some sort of incremental improvement over what we have. And that company is almost certainly behaving way differently and has a different DNA at its core, at least to begin with. Now they, they transition into normal looking companies. It's just that by the time they do that, they have these things called innovation stacks, which allow them to become, you know, I mean, I don't know what, Square's worth $100 billion right now. I mean, yeah, it's not bad. You know, two not kids bad. from St. Louis. Like, you know, I, and I mean, Southwest became the biggest airline in the United States. Uh, bank of America, biggest bank in the world. I, like, I, this is, so this is the funny pattern that I saw when I was, you know, researching my book. I found all these little startups that had been in these battles and not only had they won the battles, but then like five, 10, 20 years down the line, they literally dominate the world. Like they're literally the biggest in the world for what they do. And I was like, well, this can't be a coincidence. Like this mm -hmm. is, this is not just sort of happenstance. And this is why I, wa I so wanted to talk to Herb Kelleher because like this guy lived through it. You know, he's, he, he was, he had 30 years on me. You know, he sees what? 30 years into the future. I mean, it was like, God, it was like having a crystal ball. He was phenomenal. So, yeah. Aren't there only so many, I guess, call it like truly entrepreneurial endeavors left then, right? Or how do you think about that? Are there only no, so many perfect no, no, problems no, no, left? No, 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 no. No? No, the, 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 the universe of potential problems is, I would say, effectively infinite. I mean, and this is, so, uh, so you got to understand there's, there are no checklists in the book. There's no like guidelines on how to do this stuff. But I do show you the pattern. I just I just show how everybody does it. And the pattern is it's really pretty simple. You can take any industry and look at the spot where that industry stops. Okay. So we'll go with aviation. You know, in the case of Southwest Airlines, before Herb and his guys got those uh, you know planes flying, the only people flying were rich folks or people on business trips. And the government actually did a study proving that those are the only people who wanted to fly. And Herb thought that was crazy. It's like, how could you say that poor people don't want to fly or like normal people don't want to fly? Um, but in fact, that was the prevailing wisdom in the 70s was that, you know, only rich people wanted to fly. And you know how they figured that out? Well, they surveyed the people who were flying. And they go, oh, well, these people are all rich. Therefore, only the rich must want to fly. Okay, idiots. You know, that's a massive, massive uh, statistical error. But, you know, the, the, the point is what Southwest did was they didn't sit there and say, well, we want to build another airline like the other airlines. They said, we want to take the average person and give them a chance to visit their relatives or give them a chance to have a vacation that doesn't take them, you know, two days of, of, you know, 
interstate highway. Um, and by enabling millions of people to travel, they really improved the world and made lives better for so, so many people. And, and, and that pattern exists everywhere. I think if you look at the, you know, you know, take any problem in society and, and show me where people are no longer able to participate and you'll see a massive multi-billion dollar opportunity. So the opportunities are, are endless. The problem is that we are so conditioned literally throughout our lives and throughout not, not even our lives, but it's, it's baked into our genome. We are very safe and feel very secure when we're doing what everybody else is doing. And, um, you know, we feel uncomfortable as soon as we start leaving that herd even a little bit. But if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to really go do something radical, then you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be so far out that your physiology and your friends are all going to say, Mike, what the hell are you doing? Mike, what the, come back, come back, Mike, what, you know, we don't lose Mike. They, they love you. Like the, you're, you're the guy they want to protect. And they're trying to tell you, please don't do this crazy thing because we know it's dangerous out there. And that's because we've all been conditioned our whole lives to be effectively herd animals. And that's, you know, that's no judgment against humanity. That's, that's how I am. That's how everybody is. Mm -hmm. We're, that's just how we are. Um, but it's interesting to sort of explore what happens when you get kicked out of the herd, like happened to, well, I mean, I, I studied uh, the guy that started Ikea, Comprod, and he wanted so much to be part <laughs> of the normal Swedish furniture business, but he pissed off the raw guys and they kicked him out of the business and then eventually out of the country. I mean, like this guy was just forced to become an entrepreneur. And so he ended up becoming the most successful furniture creator in the history of humanity. <laughs> but he, he wasn't a, he wasn't a volunteer. Right. One of the kind of pulling on that, the market, I call that market sizing, right? I think one of the things we'll make sure to link to from the book or, or talk about is this idea of squares uh, market sizing. And there's this triangle and I was talking about, you know, small, medium sized, big enterprise. Right. And what yep. you guys are going for is part of the triangle that didn't even exist. These were people right. that couldn't even get access to merchant accounts, the process payment and the kind of the, one of the aha moments, even for me after doing this for so many years was market sizing is hard uh, because uh, you know, to, you know, you thought people talk about disruption though. Southwest is going to disrupt airlines. Well, more people flew, right? They didn't take away business from United, right? They actually got more passengers for everyone in the system. Uh, and, you know, Uber, there was no market size for ride sharing, um, you know, and, and it blew through all of the comparables around taxi. So I guess, you know, maybe putting this into question is how should founders and entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of people get pressed in a pitch when they're looking for investment about, the size of the opportunity, right? Is this a huge market yeah. worth going after? Um, a lot of times the question is like, who knows? Or at least that's a kind of one of the yeah. takeaways I got from the book, right? Is because like no one knew how big this opportunity could be because it just didn't exist yet. Yeah. So the proper answer is sort of sneaky. Like the way we did it at Square was we pointed 
because of course investors want to see a market and the only way you can show them a market is show them a market that other people have, right? You show them somebody else's market, right? So if you're really an entrepreneur, you're not really gunning for that market. You're going to create your own new market. And yet, if you do that, you can't prove its size or even its existence. So uh, we, we did sort of a sneaky thing at Square. We did our pitch and we pointed to the bottom part of this market of credit card. Uh, acceptance, which was still a pretty good market. I mean, there were, you know, 300 companies in it. There were, um, oh, about 5 million businesses in it. Uh, there was a lot of money in it. And we pointed to that and said, look at all this opportunity. Okay. <laughs> and then as soon as, you know, Vinod gave me and Jack his money, we promptly ignored that market <laughs> and went on building for a market even smaller that like nobody knew existed. And, uh, you know, I mean, he wasn't too upset, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, he, you know, he's got, he, he's, he's been nicely compl compensated for that yep. joke. Uh, but, <laughs> but the point is that, and I sort of explain this in the book, like if you, if you got to raise money, then you're almost by definition, not going to be raising money from people who want to back an entrepreneur. Like nobody wants to invest in the Wright brothers. Like just, that was, you know, that's not a return seeking uh, strategy. Um, and all these VCs who claim that they want to back disruption and back new markets and back, I've, I've met them. And for every one who's actually willing to do it, probably 30 just give it lip service. I mean, because we all know what to say. Like we all say, oh, yes, we're into bold and boldness and innovation and all this crap. But like you actually see who put their money down. Uh, they're not too many. And, you know, even people I mean, I consider, you know, Vinod Kosla, he's 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 got some stones like he's a you know, he's a he's an aggressive guy. But even Vinod was. Like we didn't trust anybody to tell them exactly where we were going to be targeting. <laughs> we yeah. pointed to a known market and then built for an unknown market. Uh, I, I got two two kind of follow up questions from that. One: Are you jaded by venture having gone through this? Well, I mean, I'm a venture capitalist myself. Like I have a hundred fifty million dollar fund that's doing VC investment in companies and uh it works it makes great returns i mean you know we're a top decile performance vc fund um and so i would be kind of lying to tell you i didn't play the game um so i play the game i play it yeah you know with and 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 you know our record's pretty darn good um we're not investing in thousand x return companies we're investing in 10x return companies. Well, 10x return is pretty easy to get. Like, as a matter of fact, we have a formula that we apply to every investment. And if it looks like it's going to give us our 10x, then we make the investment. And if it looks like it's not, then we don't. And and we will miss the next square. Like, we are not going to be the company that funds uh, a you know thousand x return. But that's not the business that my investors want. They want returns that are you know, 10x makes them happy. 3x makes them happy. You know, so what is the what's the formula? Is it is it is it kind of a, a publicly shared one? Or is this something that's more it's so simple? It's okay. um, we we look for uh, fintech SaaS platforms that have to be acquired by 
other larger platforms. And it takes advantage of it, the simple fact that uh, the financial industry is so terrible at, at innovation that they have to supplement innovation with integration, i.e. Mm -hmm. they just buy all their new ideas. They can't yeah. have a new idea within these organizations for a bunch of structural reasons. Um, and therefore, when a new idea comes, they're forced to whip out the checkbook and we're happy to take their check and to sell them our portfolio company that's innovative. And, um, and we don't even invest in portfolio companies that won't agree to be sold out. So like it's, this is pretty. That's like a narrative violation in itself, right? Because the one rule you always hear from venture is uh, never put your exit slide or think about your exit strategy, right? Because we want you going to the moon. And what yeah, I just heard is, is like, hey, we you have to exit because that's how this is going to work for us. Well, look, I mean, everybody's got their own philosophy. As sure. a VC, I'm a I'm a single and double hitter, but my fund I think is outperforming most of the guys that swing yeah. for the fence. But but again, I consider that really boring. I do it. Um, I do it. I'm not excited by it. It makes mm -hmm. a bunch of money. Um, and it keeps me somewhat familiar with what's going on in the world. Um, but it's, it's not what I'm interested in. Like I'm interested in ideas that have not been tested and proven. And that's where I spend the majority of my time. Like I'll spend, I spend, you know, a couple hours a week on the venture fund, you know, why even do it at all if it's not fun or where you like to spend your time? I love the people I'm doing it with, like the team that I'm working with. So those are the guys that all make it work. I'm sort of the odd man out because I don't sit on any boards. I don't do, they do most of the work okay. and I'm mostly comic relief. There you go. You know? So. I want to talk about timing, luck, kismet, whatever you call it. One of the things that I didn't know is, and I think maybe this helps kind of give a, a lens into when you were starting you know, some of your own companies, one I think was Mira Software. How did you end up meeting uh, Jack Dorsey? Oh, I met him because his mother sold us chocolate covered espresso beans. Like we were <laughs> using Jack's mother as like a drug dealer to keep the company awake. Uh, during all-nighters that were caused by my mismanagement. And so, um, you know, because I'm a bad manager, I got to meet uh, uh, Marcia Dorsey and then uh, eventually Jack. And we hired Jack when he was 15. Uh, Jack and I worked together for a couple of years, stuck up, a, you know, struck up a friendship. And then, uh, you know, after they kicked him out of Twitter, he came back to St. Louis for a while and was, you know, sort of, I, I think he was pretty hurt by what they did to him at Twitter. Um and uh, I said, do you want to get even with those assholes? And he said, well, <laughs> instead of that, why don't we start a new company and just do something productive? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sounds like a better idea. So that's how Square started. It was uh, Jack got booted from Twitter. And uh, then he and I decided to get the band get back together. So, yeah, and that was, I think, very lucky. Yeah. Did you identify any other points in your research about luck or timing with, uh, you know, all of these other companies. Like when I think of Bank of Italy, uh, now Bank of America, uh, the 1906 earthquake was kind of a, a lucky event, right? That's the reason why Bank of Italy did what it yeah. did and became Bank of America. So, I mean, like we're in the middle of a pandemic right now and we're all 
wearing masks and freaked out. And some of us, like I, lady who works for me, just lost her son. I mean, it's it's bad, folks, as you know. Um, there was an interesting thing that I noticed, though, is that every one of these companies that I studied in detail had some sort of equivalent cataclysm accompany their birth, or at least their early years. So, um, you know, in Square's case, we had Amazon. We had a couple of other things. We launched in the depths of a financial crisis. Um, Bank of America launched in uh, San Francisco the year before the great San Francisco earthquake. Um, there were crises that sort of followed these companies around. And I, and I, I didn't do a valid statistical analysis on how mm -hmm. crisis affects the birth of these hyper successful companies, but it does seem to correlate like it just does. And if I had to sort of come up with a theory, um, I would fall back on this really weird thing that I noticed. And that is, it is extremely difficult to get people to notice a new idea. And you say, well, how hard can that be? But I will tell you, like, if you've, if you've built something and the world has never seen it, and you try to get the world to accept it or understand it, let alone buy it, but just even see it, you will find that it's almost impossible to do so. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, I think, is that as humans, when everything is working fine, we do the things that we've always done, right? So if my life is great, why am I going to screw it up? Like I'm going to get up and do the same thing I did yesterday because yesterday was a great day and I'm going to do it again today. Um, but then during a crisis, like an earthquake or a world war or a pandemic, you know, you walk into Walmart and there's no toilet paper. And all of a sudden you go, I better start considering new things. You know, the, the pandemic or the crisis has a way of opening up en masse millions of people's minds. So, I mean, just look at the change of your behavior in the last year. Like, I'm mm -hmm. guessing you didn't use, you know, takeout food or delivery food or as much, you know, uh, you certainly weren't Zooming every meeting. Like, we are all living through a period of profound change. That's painful, but it also seems to be this magic ingredient. So if you're an entrepreneur, this is a golden moment. Like if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to wish that you had done something during this crisis. Like I know like five years from now, I'm going to look back and go, oh my God, I had all that opportunity during the crisis when everybody was looking for this thing and eager for it. And now, you know, that the vaccine's out and everything's passed and that's in the rearview mirror, nobody's paying attention anymore. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's some hope for the state we're in because it now is a golden moment if you're doing something new. Pulling on that idea of repetition or we do things that, you know, work the day before, one of the other things I thought was really interesting is copying. You talk about copying a lot. Copy when you can, invent when you must. Yeah. What? Um, and, and you also mentioned like you didn't read any nonfiction before you started writing this book. So why is that? Oh, I don't trust myself. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, when I finally resolved to write this book, I immediately stopped reading all news. 
I immediately stopped reading all business books. I stopped all my magazines. I just went on a 100% media diet um, because I find ideas very infectious and I didn't want to rewrite somebody else's crap. Like if somebody had written something and, you know, you, you, like a good book may have two or three good ideas in it. A great book may have five or six. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write a great book. And I didn't want, did not want my ideas to be derivative of anybody else's. So I literally walled myself off from all media and then only did my own research and only did stuff that I thought was relevant. And then, you know, it was, it, that was a three-year process. At the end of those three years, I then took off the blinders and said, am I insane? And have I just replicated what everybody else has done? And th- I think the good answer was no, nobody is like, th- there are a couple of ideas in the book, you know, one of which is this, this talk about how copying is so wired into us that I've never seen discussed. And at least the people who've read it so far have been like, okay, new ideas in here, which, but the, the price of that was for me to go on a hundred percent diet where, cause like there's some great stuff out there, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, you kind of want to write it, you know, you read it and then six months, six months go by. And then you think, well, I just had this wonderful I- original idea. And it's like, no, you don't. You just rewriting tipping point. <laughs> you, know, <or> <laughs> you, know, you idiot. You know, this is, this is, this has been discussed. Um, but, uh, you know, the other part of your question, which is copying, uh, I, I want your listeners to know that I am a deep, strong proponent of copying everything you possibly can. And I don't want to seem disrespectful when I say businesses only copy, um, because that's what businesses should do. If you have mm-hmm. a business that works, what you should be doing is what works. And what works for you probably works for 10 of your competitors. And when one of those competitors comes up with something a little bit new, you should probably copy what they do a little bit, you know? And 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 that's that's how most things should be. But I don't want to spend every moment of my life in complete copy mode. Like I want to be willing and 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 I wanted the readers to be willing. Like this is the reason to write a book. I'm I'm fine with this. But you know, if I could get a million people to understand that at some point in your life, yeah, maybe not even this year, like at some point, you're gonna find a problem that you care about and that has not been solved in a way that you think is decent, and you can't find any person to copy. And then I want you to understand that there is this other set of tools. And this set of tools is going to make you feel really uncomfortable, okay? Uh, but it is supremely powerful. And if you understand that it is possible, you might not uh, – I was going to say hesitate, but you'll probably hesitate. But you probably won't quit as quickly. So yeah. probably the, the biggest compliment I got from the book – I was sitting – it was a – you know book was just written. I gave it to this guy, super successful guy. I was sitting, I'm like, All right, how successful is this guy? I'm sitting in his living room. Okay. In his living room, there is a painting that is worth more than everything I own. <laughs> everything. You take every, every material possession that me and my family have, everything, and you pile it up and you sell it at full retail. It's not worth as much as this one painting on this guy's living room. All right. And we're sitting there talking. And he's been very successful. And he says to me, 
I wish I'd had this book 15 years ago because I was building one of these companies and I quit because it got too painful because I didn't recognize the process was supposed to be this painful. And I was like, wow, that is really profound because like if you, like, I'm not going to say I can make the process less painful, but it's sort of like if you expect to be in a place that's a harsh climate, you're at least better prepared. You know, like I spent Christmas up in Wisconsin. I expected it to be cold and nasty weather, you know? Now, if I had gone to Wisconsin packed for Miami beach, I would have been really disappointed, you know? And I think a lot of us pack for Miami beach and we wake up in Wisconsin and go, Whoa, it's cold out there. It's like, yeah, it's cold out there, but look, you can survive. Yeah, absolutely. When, when, one of the things I wrote down, uh, kind of related to all this that I found myself pondering, you have a quote that says, uh, this is why I laugh when people copy Google's management practices they have 20 billion <laughs> they have 20 billion dollars in free cash flow fixes problems so my question to you is when is it good to copy things like, I, I'm not sure if you're referring to okrs or, or maybe some of the things Google does but when is it okay to copy or when should you think about copying and when shouldn't you copy then well I uh, you know it, I have a sort of a formula I try to copy like yeah you know I try to copy all the stuff that I think works now pick your subject. I mean, I think copying management from companies that have, you know, sort of massively different business models. And if you could argue that there's a company on the planet, unlike any other, I would say Google's one of your nominees, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, I'm yeah. going to copy Apple for product design. No, you're not, <laughs> idiot. Yeah. Like, you're not going to do that. Like, you don't have what they have. First of all, you don't have the brand, you know, you build me something that is exactly like something that Johnny Ives would put out. And, you know, 20,000 people are not going to camp out overnight to, to buy it for the first, you know, so don't, don't perhaps emulate the companies that are massive outliers, but, you know, look realistically at what the challenge is before you and, and, and then humbly admit that you're probably not the first person in the world to recognize this problem. Mm -hmm. Humbly admit that probably somebody way smarter than you has already figured out how to fix it. And that your job is to find that person or that company or that solution, okay? And, and with that humility in your heart and in your head, go seek the solution and don't be a victim of not invented here. That, that arrogance that, that says, unless you're the one who has the idea that it's not a good idea, okay? Um, but then, you know, if you wander down that path long enough and you still don't find a solution, then the question, which I'd like you to ask is, Am I willing to now do this totally different thing called innovation where I'm going to bumble along and probably create more problems for myself and ultimately may never succeed? Um, but that's what it will take if I really want to solve this problem. And, and I don't want everyone to just reflexively quit there because mm -hmm. the thing that breaks my heart is I've met too many people and, and I've, I've actually been this person in, 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 a, you know, in, in certain challenges I've, I've confronted problems. And I said, I can't handle that. And the answer is, well, you know, I probably could have, um, you know, Square's case, I'm glad we didn't quit. You know, like the first day we discovered that what Square was doing was illegal. <laughs> like, <laughs> like halfway through the first day, we were like, I was like, turned to the guy. I was like, what we're doing is prohibited by law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, fortunately, Jack Dorsey is a guy who doesn't flinch at that stuff. And I've been a guy who's, you know, had enough time on the other side of the 
you know, compliance curve that uh, I was okay with it, you know, but at least we didn't give up. Now, that's not to say that we said, screw the law, we're going to, you know, just violate it. No, but uh, we believe that what we were building was important enough that we could eventually get compliant or have the laws changed. And in Square's case, we had to do both. We had to change some rules and we had to comply with others. Um, but don't just look at something when copying fails and say, that's all I'll ever be in my life, you know? Yeah. And, but, but again, I, I need to, I need to put this warning on here because I think people take, take this as, 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 as advice. That only works if you have the humility to also recognize that a lot of the stuff that you think uh, is a big deal is not a big deal to somebody else and they can fix that. So avail yourself of that so that you can take what precious energy you have left and point it to the real unsolved problems. That's a great segue into actually innovation stacks, in my opinion. Uh, we haven't even talked about it yet. Uh, we're into this interview and it's the name of the book. Uh, and I'm sure you've answered this question a thousand times. What is an innovation stack? It's the mess that solves the problem. It's not one thing, it's not two things. In, in, so this is the pattern that I saw, Mike. I was looking at these companies that had literally become the biggest in the, in the world. They had created entirely new industries. And I, at every one of them, I saw not just one or two different behaviors, but dozens of different behaviors, different behaviors, different things they were doing, okay? Um, so, you know, talked about Square Enough. Let's talk about Southwest. You know, Southwest Airlines did at least 20 things different than the other airlines did. You know, from the way they boarded the planes to the type of planes they flew to the way they certified their pilots to the way they, you know, changed the hub and spoke model to, you know, the way they priced their tickets, where you could buy those tickets, um, all this stuff. And you start adding one thing on top of another and you notice that these things are not, in fact, independent that the way you board your plane affects how quickly you can turn your plane around and the type of flight attendants you can hire and the type of pilots that you can hire and the type of pilots you hire and the flight attendants hire that impacts your baggage handlers and how you train those baggage handlers and what those baggage handlers are, you know, are going to do other things for you and like, and, and where you pick your gates and all this stuff and Southwest piled all these things up. And this was my conversation with Herb that was so cool because Herb, Herb lit up, when I said this, and he was like, yes, he's like, for, you know, for 20 years, everybody was trying to copy Southwest, and they'd copy two or three things that Southwest did, and they'd say, we have the next Southwest, and Southwest would literally watch them fall out of the sky. I mean, they yeah. were just like, oh, you know. Um, so an innovation stack is this mess that is necessary to solve a problem or if you don't want to think in terms of problem solving it's the thing that creates the new industry so um back to the airplane as an analogy okay what's an airplane well is it the wright brothers gluing together some you know spruce and a bit of canvas uh no they had to shape the wings they had to support those wings uh, they had to find propellers. Well, actually, nobody built a propeller. What's a propeller? Well, propellers are spinning airfoil, so they had to figure out the airfoil. And then they had to drive the propeller. Well, that's like what that's going to do is require an engine. Oops, engines are too heavy. So they had to build an engine out of aluminum, which was a big deal. Uh, and, you know, and oh, wait, you can't make an engine out of aluminum the same, same way you make an engine out of steel. So, like, 
just that engine is its own innovation stack. So, you know, you look at a company that's doing something new, they're not doing a new thing. They're doing dozens of new things. And by the time they get all of those new things working, they have what I call an innovation stack. And looking at invention that way makes it a little easier when you're, you know, six steps in and it still doesn't work because it's a 24 step process. And it makes it a little easier when you're 23 steps in and you realize that to do the 24th step invalidates the third, sixth and 15th thing that you've done. And those now have to be reworked. Um, and that process is painful, but when it's finished, <laughs> you own the market, you define the market. And you not only do that in sort of a greedy self-serving way, you do it in a way that enables people who had previously had no opportunity to travel by air or have new furniture or have a bank account or process a credit card or, you know, or, you know, have an electric car, you know, you've now enabled that for millions of people. And it's a wonderful place to be on the other side. So I want to encourage more people to take that journey. But look, I know very few people will. But here's the thing. You're going to have your chance. You as a human who wanders around the planet are going to bump in your life against dozens of these Call them opportunities, call them whatever, call them problems. But you're gonna you're gonna do it, and and most of the time you're gonna go, oh, forget it. I'm too busy or too tired or, you know, too infected with SARS-CoV-2 or whatever the hell is you know your current thing. Mm -hmm. But what if you could do it? You know, don't quit just because you will feel weird. Don't quit just because all your life you've been trained to copy. And now we're asking you for the first time to do something where there's no guarantee and you're going to feel really uncomfortable. Is it fair to say that one of the things that I took away from the book was, you know, these innovation stacks, these elements all kind of are intertwined. And you gave this example that someone could copy maybe 75% of your innovation stack. And if you have 20 of these, right, the odds of you copying someone's company is almost zero percent. Is it fair to say that an innovation stack also serves as a moat for your business in addition to a flywheel of growth, but also as a, as a moat to other outside competitors like a Amazon? It's not a moat. It's an ocean. Like yeah. <laughs> a moat. I, I'm picturing some guy with a pole vault yeah. uh, get across your moat. I'm thinking that like this is this is this is the Pacific Ocean, right? Yeah. Um, this is, it's such a protector of these companies that literally these companies can maintain market dominance for a century if they choose. Like I've seen examples of successful defense in these innovation stack companies, assuming they play by the rules of the innovation stack, you know, they, they, they play by the rules of the entrepreneur as opposed to the rules of the business person. Uh, which doesn't mean just jacking your customer for as much uh, money as you can get on every single transaction. You have to be super, super respectful of your customers, but um, it's a phenomenal protector. And and again, it's so phenomenal that that's why I believe Square survived an attack by Amazon. Because if you look at the statistics, a startup that Amazon decides to target is dead. One hundred percent of the time. Oh, diapers.com. 
Yeah. Um, you know, like boom. Uh, you know, the, the, the Amazon looked at the diaper business, saw this little startup that was selling diapers. Um, they copied their offering, undercut their price by 30%. Surprise, surprise. Uh, diapers.com uh, becomes part of Amazon. Um, Zappos. I mean, we, you know, poor Tony. I really miss Tony. Like, he was super cool. Uh, shout out to Tony because we went and visited him like when Square was starting mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Zappos was still independent and, you know, he was fighting Amazon and, you know, no, he wasn't. He was about to get acquired by Amazon, <laughs> you know, because that's what happens. You don't fight Amazon. Nobody beats Amazon. Like we had this one data point and it was us. Yep. <laughs> and before that, there were zero data points. So if you talk about the protection of the innovation stack as a moat, it's, I mean, it's an ocean. Like it is mm-hmm. the, it takes, it, it, it allowed a underfunded, poorly run startup like Square. And I say poorly run out of the deepest respect to all of us who were poorly running it. But like we were not this well oiled machine compared to Amazon. Sure. And we survived. We beat them. How's that possible? Well, I show you the math in the book. There we go. Uh, last last theme, and then and then uh, Jim, thanks so much for your time. I, I do want to touch on pricing and customers. That was another thing I found really interesting. Is uh, a lot of these markets that have been created are for people that weren't able to do something for for some reason, um, whether that's open a bank account, fly, uh, process a credit card, buy furniture. Uh, are you more geared towards? Like I guess the the low cost type model versus premium pricing. If you think, you know, Tesla, right? They were the inverse. They started premium product and worked their way down. Are you geared more towards companies that have a low price as one of the elements in their innovation stack? Uh, well, yes, but you know, if we wanted to analyze Tesla, um, you know, they did a MVP using a Lotus chassis and a bunch of Dell laptop batteries proved concept and then got out what I would consider a low price ultra luxury sedan. Yeah, fair. You know, like I would not compare the Tesla S with a Mercedes. I would compare it with, you know, whatever Bentley was produced. Like it was the mm-hmm. ultimate driving machine. Uh, and, and they've been racing to cut price and to, lower price. So, I mean, you know, Tesla's its own thing. Um, and they've got a tremendous innovation stack, but look, generally for these other companies, yeah, I think, I think you keep the price as low as you can. Um, but my thing with pricing is that what I noticed is that the innovation stack companies had this choice between getting a lot of money, like wildly profitable or getting a little. And the one that chose the ones that chose to get a little, kept their customers for generations and the ones that abandoned it. And, and, you know, again, tragically, I think Southwest is, is in the latter category because Southwest mm-hmm. under Herb never had any competition that was serious. Um, Southwest after Herb left, a bunch of airlines started in their face and they're still flying today. Uh, that didn't happen under Herb Kelleher, but under Herb's Kelleher, you knew that Southwest was going to give you a cheap ticket. And uh, once Herb left, Southwest was actually uh, 
they actually got sued by the government and lost uh, on price fixing. You know, so Southwest is no longer a cheap way to fly. They're no longer of value the way they used to be. Um, and, and, you know, that's a choice. Like they, they basically chose to make uh, an egregious amount of money for, you know, a decade, decade and a half and totally cede the dominance of air travel to yeah. have other companies. Um, so, uh, so that was your first question, pricing. And I think your second question was, you know, how, how do you handle your customers? And, you know, pricing is, of course, part of the way you handle your customers. You, you're, the, the way you price, if you're, see, if you're an innovative company, and I, again, I, I don't want your people who are listening to this podcast who are just running businesses that are normal to think that they should follow this advice. Like, you really need to know what side of that line, what side of that graph you're on, right? Yeah. If you're on the wrong side of the graph, you will crash into the ground. Like, I do not want to tell you that this is, this is, you know, Jim McKelvey told me to do this and therefore I'm bankrupt. No. Um, uh, but you, first of all, signal to your customers your respect for them by changing your price to fit the circumstances, which means if you became way more efficient recently, you cut your price. If all of a sudden it's possible for you to give your customers a better deal, even though you don't have to because you basically have no competition, you do it anyway. And that creates a level of trust and zealotry in the customer base that is amazingly powerful. And, and, and one of the ways the customer sort of rewards innovation stack companies is that the customers will behave differently. So Square's customers would accept the fact that we had no phone support like for the first several years of our company, like if you had a problem with Square, you sent us an email and we'd get around to answering it, answering it eventually, but we couldn't pick, you can pick up the phone and talk to us. Well, that's, that's heresy. Like who in the world would trust their credit card company, the money that's coming to their business to a company you can't even call? Well, the answer is, yeah, a couple million people and they were pretty damn happy, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, who in their right mind would board an airline without knowing where they're going to sit. Well, Southwest, there are no assigned seats on Southwest. And Southwest took a lot of grief for that, but ultimately their customers adapted to the way Southwest needed to be in order to provide their service because what Southwest was providing or what Bank of America was providing or what IKEA or, you know, Bird's Eye Food was, you know, another example of a company with a great innovation stack. You know, Ford in the early days, you know, you can have any color as long as it's black. Guess what? It didn't hurt the sales of the Model T, you know? So don't, don't believe that your customers have the same, um, I was going to say rights, but it's not even rights. It's the customer experience is one that you craft together. And when you're a customer to an innovation stack company, you are not so much an early adopter as an early adapter. Like you are somebody who is going to modify their behavior a little bit in order to benefit from this new thing that you would otherwise not be able to get. Yeah, I think the the one I loved in the book, this is also tied to that moments of wow, was the the square reader itself that you designed, right? You guys wanted to be small and a square and swiping it only worked, I think it was 80% of the time at some point. But yeah. that was something your customers were adaptable to and actually ended up being like a talking point and selling point of the product that you didn't even expect. 
it was certainly a surprise to me when mm-hmm. I realized that releasing a product that didn't work as well as something else that we had uh, was the way to go. Um, and that's a funny story because the Square Reader, which I was the guy who built it, and I'm the guy that's responsible for how ridiculously small it is. And it was even more ridiculously small when I built the first one. Like the first Square Reader was um, you know, a full eight centimeters narrower than the one that we've currently uh, got on the market. So it was really rocky and the card would rock and you couldn't read it about you know, one out of five swipes. And um, interestingly, and, and this gets back to you know, sort of one of our earlier themes today, which is how hard it is to get a new thing noticed. So we talk about the pandemic as being an opportunity because you know right now people's minds are more open to ideas than they would normally be. Um, and in Square's case, what I noticed was that when we were showing our radical new product to people, and I used the big card reader, people didn't get that excited. Um, when I used the little card reader, they were really intrigued, even though the little card reader didn't work as well, you know. Um, and, and we had both of them manufactured. I literally was so unsure of my decision that I, I built both. Okay. I built a big one and a little one. You never shipped the big one. Um, uh, and the big one, even though performed better, didn't get people's attention. It didn't get them to, to wake up for that second that I needed them to wake up and notice squares. So, um, it was a big deal. It was a big risk, but I believe ultimately, you know, if you build something new, you will very quickly discover how hard it is to get the world to notice. And we stumbled upon this thing that got people's attention, if only for a couple of seconds. But during those seconds, you got to remember that, you know, we didn't have any sales force. We didn't have any advertising. So the only way people would find our products would be they'd encounter some merchant who was using them. Mm-hmm. And if that experience with that merchant was positive, then they might themselves become a merchant or they might tell their friend who needed it, hey, I just saw this thing. You got to check it out. You know, And we survived on word of mouth with zero advertising for like two years. Now, think about that. At the time, we were growing 10% week over week, which means that my company was doubling in size every other month for two years with zero ad spend, zero sales force, no live customer support, and this funky little reader that didn't work that well. (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, it's it's wild, right? It's a testament to all of the other things that you guys were doing for customers that are part of that, that stack that you guys were building. Um, last question, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. Um, feedback failure. I thought this was really uh, it, important for us to touch on too, as we talk to founders and, and entrepreneurs and other people. Um, you, you mentioned this idea of feedback failure in the sense of getting the wrong feedback about something you're trying to innovate on. What have you learned? You know, you, you've started a bunch of companies now, are involved in, in investing in more and starting more. What are some ways? What is, I guess, feedback failure, and what are ways founders can uh, you know, navigate, making sure they're getting the right kind of feedback for whatever they're trying to innovate on. So it's impossible to get a 
an answer about something that has not been done yet. And that's sort of the first thing that mm -hmm. I see. This that, that's that's probably the biggest mistake that I see is people start down this path of innovation and then at some point they get so nervous because they're not getting any confirmation that what they're doing is going to work that they go seeking information to prove that what they're doing is right. So they try some market survey or, you know, they hire McKinsey or, you know, like there's some, there's some desperate cry to create some graph that shows that they're not going to all die. And um, unfortunately the data that creates that graph always comes from the existing market. So it creates this very bad set of information. In fact, almost worse than no information. Um, you're not able to survey what has never been done. You can't market test the product that nobody's ever seen. Like you can't even focus group. Like it, so, yeah. so, um, and, and there's also, there's just a hundred problems with trying to, um, guarantee certainty when you're innovating. And so the, you know, sort of the big point I'm making in the book is that that is a natural thing to want and yet you're not going to get it. So don't waste too much time guaranteeing your success because there's no guarantee, you know. Um, it's, and this is that whole sort of last last third of the book is really dedicated to all of these things that just bit me in the ass for so many years and I couldn't tell why um, because, hey, it seemed to work for all my friends. Well, it turns out my friends were running businesses and sometimes I was running a business, but other times I was being an entrepreneur and because I didn't understand the difference, I would apply the tools of one world to the tools of the other world, you know, and, you know, it's, it's like if you are let's say you're you know an mma fighter and a tinder user okay there's yeah. a certain set of behaviors that are appropriate when you're in a cage with a guy who's trying to punch you into unconsciousness and then there's another set of behaviors that it's appropriate you know 3 hours later when you're sipping a latte with somebody you met online right yep. <laughs> like you don't want the behavior sets that's a terrible analogy <laughs> that's a good one i like it I can't come up with a better like, but like it's just so different, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it you better recognize the context for which your behaviors are appropriate, and because we spend as our as humans, we spend so little time in a world of uncertainty and innovation. We don't have the tools and the familiarity. So, like the last third of the whole book is basically saying. Look at these situations, and feedback failure is one of them. But uh, you know, the pricing, the way customers work, like all these things, they're business and personal, and also the way you feel. Like all that stuff's gonna feel weird and work weird, and it's going to behave in this way. And I try to give reasons, but ultimately, I just want people to sort of be open to the fact that if you are successful as an entrepreneur, um, things will work differently. You know, 
and I mean, maybe it's too early to talk about politics, but you know, we're in a political crisis right now. Um, I see in a lot of the political stuff that's going on examples of these phenomena. You know, mm -hmm. where where a message to one party is interpreted one way, and the same words to the other party is interpreted diametrically differently. You know, and and it's very difficult to resolve those because we all, you know, we all hear in our own voices. I lied. I have one more question. Go. Oh. Do you have time for one more? Yeah, 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 yeah. Can we talk about location? I mean, you know, you're in St. Louis. I'm from I'm from Illinois. Um, I guess I would just love to get your thoughts on on where companies are being built now, right? I mean, COVID is certainly uh, taking this and shaking everything up right before like it had to be in the valley. Now it's it's it seems like the world is kind of free game. Any any thoughts on on location? Are you trying to personally invest in in the Midwest, or what, what's your take on just geography and location? So I'm deeply committed to St. Louis. I've got uh, over well over hundred million dollars of current local projects going on, um, including bringing uh, the Premier Square office to my hometown. Um, Amazing. We're doing um, a lot of great stuff here. I, you know, it depends on how we come out of this crisis and how things settle back. And I would expect there's going to be a lot of partying going on and a lot of need for people to get together because, you know, cool as it is to, you know, sort of have these video chats, which let's face it, we didn't have it two years ago. Um, it's not the same. So, yeah, I'm just saying stuff that everybody knows. Okay. Yeah, but, uh, but, but, but what's likely to happen? Oh, hell, I don't know. What's, yeah. what's likely to happen is some sort of weird snapback. And I could argue it either way. Okay, so um, I was having this conversation with my wife yesterday. She was like, well, people aren't going to travel because they don't need to travel because they can do stuff with Zoom. And I was like, yeah, so people could do stuff with Zoom so they don't have to be in the town where they actually work. They can go travel. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's yeah. there's your argument, right? And of course, my wife was was you know won the argument, but like the point is, neither one of us could prove our case sure. because, in fact, you just don't know. Uh, but you know, to to give you the the answer, I would say prior to COVID and the massive inflation and almost unlivability of cities uh, that are you know too expensive to live. Um, I think it was a good decision to move out to San Francisco, which is where we moved, uh, to start square because it was the epicenter of talent. Uh, we could get the things done that we needed to get done and it all worked. Um, and these days those constraints are a little bit less, um, but there may be other things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe the answer is, Hey, San Francisco continues to kick ass, not because it's the epicenter, but because it's just a, such a cool place to live that that's where talented people choose to live. And since they can work from anywhere, they choose to work from there. Now, I think that's not true because <laughs> I lived there and it sucked. Um, but I could see, you know, many, many people making different choices and having that freedom. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. What's next? You, you know, you're learning to get, you're going to typewrite it on commercial 
metal. What else? Yeah. Anything else on your mind? Uh, so I'm actually in the glass studio again. I'm making uh, a line of. I can show you one of them. This yeah. is a. Uh, wow. I've been thinking a lot about whiskey this year, so I'm making drinking okay. glasses that are really difficult to use. This thing is like you don't sip out of this thing <laughs> casually. Um, yeah. And uh, I've been playing a lot with that. Uh, I'm I'm working on a few other things, um, but what I'm trying to do right now is create the space for another big idea at some point. So I don't run my companies. I'm not good at running them. And as a result, I have to partner up with people who are good and I let them take it. And, 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 and then I get my time back. So, you know, thank God Jack's running Square. I praise him every day for what he's doing yeah. there. It's fantastic. Um, I, think, I think there will be two or three more problems that I get that are big. Um, and I, I, want, I just want to have the bandwidth to you know, to, to explore and then, and then hopefully have, you know, maybe, maybe another innovation stack happen. So that's, that's what I'm hoping. Okay. Um, and if, if not, then I'll, then I'm going to try to spread the word to as many people because I want these problems solved. Like I want this tool set to be out in the hands of as many people as possible and, you know, honor the, the challenge that Herb Kelleher gave me, which I took very seriously. And I thought, you know, it was, I think it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, uh, I can, I can attest to that. I, I read the book. Uh, anyone listening, if you don't want to buy it, email me, I'll buy it for you. If you can't afford it or you're, you're questioning it, I'll buy the book for you. I think it's great. There's an awesome, uh, nostalgia to a lot of incredible companies that have been built. Uh, Jim's experience starting square. Uh, I think there's a lot of practical, practical things you as a founder can take. Like I've, I was running down a ton of notes. Like, Hey, even if we're pitching investors or a team, how do we think about our own stack and our own uh, elements that we can build as a company to create that ocean? So uh, I'll buy it for you if you don't want to buy it. It's a great book. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for jumping on and taking time. This was a blast. Uh, really appreciate it. Looking forward to, to staying in touch and uh, we'll talk soon. Mike, thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Take care.